if you want to separate and differentiate yourself in the marketplace, it's not going to be your where you went to school. It's going to be, do you demonstrate these foundational workplace skills? Do you have a good attitude? Are you willing to learn? Are you a good team player? Are you a creative thinker? Are you a problem solver? And I think we're really going to see this as an opportunity for a renaissance around more streamlined local community college options for education in partnership with local employers. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing, and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. It's become more and more evident that the most desirable skills employers are asking for are the human ones. As our guest Josh Davies, CEO of the Center for Work Ethic Development, defines it, any skill that can't be done by a machine. This is what Davies predicts will be the most valuable asset in the future workplace, skills that may just be better acquired in a community fostered within a two-year institution because of the agility and flexibility they offer in comparison to others. This might be the gateway to how we build a culture of accountability and trust. Hey, Josh, good morning. Uh, good morning. How are you? Very good. Thank you so much for joining us uh, in this much needed conversation, right, around the future of work. Honestly, especially given the current global crisis, it, it couldn't be much timelier, wouldn't you agree? Uh, there is no doubt. I, you know, I've been talking and researching and, you know, networking and learning all about this kind of this concept of, um, you know, the future of work or the evolution of work for, for several years now. And I will tell you this, what this past two months has really shown more than anything is it's just an accelerant of everything that was happening and all the trends that were happening locally and globally. And so, you know, there is no better time than the present to be talking about this because we've got to step up our game and, and speed it up too. That's right. Isn't that the truth? Let's let's get right into this. You know, who is Josh Davies? <laughs> who is Josh Davies? Uh, who, who, uh, so, who are you? Uh, jo <laughs> yeah, existentially or uh, no. Um, so, no, uh, Josh Davies, uh, I am the CEO of an organization called the Center for Work Ethic Development. Uh, we're a uh, organization based out of Denver, Colorado, um, but we partner with folks around the country and around the world who are preparing people to enter into the workforce. Sometimes that looks like 
are two-year partners um, in the post-secondary world. Uh, sometimes it's four-year universities. Sometimes it's secondary education. Sometimes it's government job training programs. Sometimes it's nonprofit groups, community-based organizations, uh, correctional facilities, anyone and everyone who is helping to prepare people to enter into the workforce. Sometimes that's for the first time. Sometimes it's a second career, um, whether or not they've been dislocated, kind of wherever and however that is. We have a curriculum around that. We do consulting. And um, I get the honor and the privilege of getting a chance to speak at a lot of different uh, events and industry organizational pieces and, and find ways to connect with people and learn more about what's happening in the world. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a great journey. And so as a result of that, I've really gotten a chance to dig in, learn a lot about what's happening. And uh, some of it's really awesome and um, a lot of it's really scary. Absolutely. And as organizations, as specifically economic development organizations, we're looking at ways that, to your point earlier, we've, we knew this was coming, right? It's just mm-hmm. amplified now. It's amplified with this global crisis. And now more than ever is really the time for us to come together, collaborate, rethink, retool, revamp, and let's get folks back into jobs in the future jobs that we don't, that we do not know yet that, you know, we don't know that exists just yet. Mm-hmm. So and there's so many pressing topics, right? There's so <laughs> many, it's, it's, it's so fluid and there's all these variables, right? So as, as the CEO of the center for work ethnic development, I mean, I would imagine that your topics range from, you know, I don't know. I'm going to let you talk about that, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, what are the range of pressing topics that you are coaching organizational leaders, especially during this time right now? Yeah. Well, the primary piece that we do is we help organizations develop foundational workplace skills. And that, you know, seems like it's just kind of common sense stuff, but we're finding uh, regardless of kind of where people are, one of the things that is really a skill deficiency for a variety of reasons, is just basic foundational workplace skills. So we have a whole piece where we help organizations develop what we call the seven A's, help people develop a more positive attitude around attendance, good appearance, both in what they wear and how they act, kind of how they approach other people, ambition to do more than the minimum, being accepting of other people and of the rules, having appreciation for the people that they work with and for, and the accountability to do what they say they do every day. Um, It's probably that last piece that organizational leaders are seeing a real challenge in so many different places. This idea of how do we help create organizations that build a culture of accountability and trust. And so that's really been a big piece from a, a leadership standpoint. But from this global perspective, what that's really allowed us to do is get in and see this evolution of work, this future of work, and really try and figure out what it is that we need to do. You know, probably one of the most sort of interesting visuals I ever got, I was speaking with the Secretary of Labor from uh, the state of Kentucky, and she and I were going back and forth about some of the work that they were doing in Kentucky. And she was really lamenting a lot of the programs that they had, these sort of legacy programs they'd been doing in different organizations and schools there. And uh, she described it this way. She's like, it feels like all we're doing is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. That we're taking people who have been dislocated from one job because that industry is closed and Mm -hmm. training them for a new job that we know in five years, in 10 years, 
will be gone and they'll be back here again. And all we're doing is preparing people for the next inevitability rather than really focusing on giving them the skill development they need to be ready for the future instead of sort of this disappearing, receding past. And that, that to me was a real wake-up call around what's going on and really helped me dig into if we don't know what the future holds, what are clues that we can use to better prepare ourselves for this unknown future? And that's really what we've been digging into here at the Center for Work Ethic Development. And I, I was lucky enough to hear you speak at one of our convenings. And, you know, you talked a lot about critical thinking and problem solving, those kinds of skills that we can teach technology, we can teach, we can teach anything, some stuff that we think <laughs> are, you know, we don't know just yet, right. But, you know, there's that missing element of just these human skills that we are forgetting. And you mentioned a key word, you talked about intersectionalities, right? Intersections. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts around that? Like, you know, tell me a little bit more about, you know, we know as leaders within this, within this arena about how this intersection between government industry and academia could be working or should be working based on your experiences and our listener who is, who is here with us. What are your thoughts around that? What do you what do you foresee? What is your vision around this intersectionality, this collaboration between these three strong entities of government, industry, and academia? Yeah, well, that is such a you know as we as we head to where we're headed, that that is really a riddle that we need to figure out better. Um, you know, when we look at how those three entities come together, you know, traditionally when we look at partnership with our employers, the corporate side of things. The idea of a quote-unquote relationship, right, typically has been like writing a check. Yeah. That's the idea of a relationship, right? Like, hey, right. you can sponsor our program. You can help, you know, name this building, right? You can do those kinds of things. It's not really about this sort of back and forth, what do we need? Because in the past, we've seen education as something that happens outside of the workplace. Right. You go to school, you get educated, and then I'll take you. And then learning stops. Right. Or, or maybe you <laughs> right. go back to education. Right? Not mm -hmm. this idea of that learning is on this continuum. Though, I mean, the, the irony of that is when you ask people and to listeners who are on this, you know, listening to this podcast, is, you know, I, we deal with people all the time who are very highly educated. People have doctorates like yourself. People have master's degrees, you know, just a, a bachelor's degree in AA. And I'll constantly ask them, right? So you've got all this great education. Would you say that you're more effective at what you do today because of what you learned in your education or what you learned outside of it? And almost everybody, let me rephrase that, everybody, <laughs> including uh -huh. president, you know, That's chancellors, president presidents right? of colleges all say <laughs> it's because of what I learned outside, right? That's right. And that's powerful, right? It's not that education isn't important. It is, but we need to realize that this lifelong continuum happens and we need to do a better job as an educational institution of helping to validate that along the way and partnering with folks. And what does that look like? And is that a micro-credential? Is that some sort of badging? Is that some way where we partner together to help validate the learning that's happening outside of our classroom, but that we can help our educational partners then build so that we can develop these skills? You know, that's, a, that's an important piece. And what is government doing in terms of funding these things. How are we using government in order to facilitate that? And 
again, in the past, we've looked at government as a funding mechanism, not necessarily as a conduit. And I think there's a lot of ways that we can do a better job where government can be the convener, can be the glue that helps education and employers do a better job of partnering together instead of, again, setting up just sort of lanes of the freeway. They can really help better guide and get people to actually merge into traffic, if you want to use that as a metaphor. Because that's really, I think, that's going to be a key kind of moving forward. Right. I would agree with you. Agree with you 100%. And are we seeing any models out there? I haven't, I have not personally seen a model that out there that's refined and fluid in this government academia industry exchange. How about you? Well, there are, you know, there's a few pockets of some places that are doing some really good things. I'll brag here in Colorado. The Colorado Workforce Development Board is a statewide organization. Again, without going too far in the policy weeds, it's part of the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, which is a nationwide piece of legislation that's been around for many years under different names. And what it's done really is taken that role of trying to be that convener um, and really bringing more industry partners to the table, really in this form of more sector strategies where it's getting employers who may be even competitors in a particular industry, but who are having needs and gaps around talent and trying to figure out what it is that we can do together with education and then with sort of government as convener to help get that talent pipeline moving in a particular direction for one specific industry or sector. You know, there's a great example in healthcare um, and helping you know, do some different things. But part of that, the challenge is even within our own worlds, we have problems. You know, a perfect example, again, with the a healthcare partnership that I'm talking about, is this gap and this challenge in terms of relationship between our two-year partners and our four-year partners. And how are we, um, you know, matriculating credits and how are right. we, you know, working some things. And so here in Denver, where I just will use this example, the Community College of Denver had a two-year program um, where they were putting in students and got an agreement with the University of Colorado and their medical campus that they would guarantee admission for anyone who graduated from the CCD program into this program, the University of Colorado. And there was a lot of, obviously, feet dragging and real comeuppance because, you know, a lot of these folks at CCD didn't meet the rigorous academic standards that they had at the four-year university. And how are these students going to be able to be successful in a more rigorous environment? Well, when they actually opened up the program and did that, the cohort from CCD outperformed the four-year students every single time. Beautiful. Right. Beautiful, yeah. It was yeah. not ever a question of their capability. Right? It was a right. question of whether or not they met certain you know, academic thresholds related to testing scores or GPA or whatever that might be, um, neither of right. which are fantastic indicators of future success. But again, that's a different rabbit hole. Right, um, that's right. right. The, the barriers that exist right, aren't always just between employers and academia. Sometimes it, we create them ourselves and trying to – create ways for us to have conversations to break down those barriers as well to get intersectionality within each of those groups and get us all moving together i think you know if we could do it just by industry by industry that's going to be a big step you know i know there's a lot of stuff happening there at the la area community colleges around this idea of you know industry partnerships and some of those different pieces what 
Is there one of those that you think has been more successful? I'm going to throw back the question at you. Is there is there one you think has been more successful there in the LA area as it relates to you know helping to drive that sort of talent pipeline or at least create some more communication? Yeah, absolutely. We have we have a a project. It's the Amazon Cloud project, and that project itself is with our LA 19 community colleges. You know, the, in California, we have what we call our Strong Workforce Initiative, and there's regional projects and local projects the amazon project lives in the regional side of the house and it's with you know 19 community colleges we're working with them in building the curriculum in relevant right relevant Mm -hmm. curriculum that prepares our student into these future jobs and it's it's been a beautiful partnership we're now on round three of it and i couldn't tell i couldn't tell you more about it like it and that would be a whole other episode, to be quite honest. With you. <laughs> just, just um, so that I, I remember you yeah. talking. I mean, the the other presidents from the, the colleges just sort of raving about that. And they, I mean, again, it was something was in there like, you know, who produced more? There's a, a certificate uh, program that they were that you were doing, and it's like they produced more at that Amazon facility in terms of right. AWS certifications than any school, any individual school in America. Yeah, some, I mean, yeah. it was some ri- like some mm-hmm. ridiculous amount, mm-hmm. right? Because what has to happen is learning, and I'll tell you this: this is the one thing that this, you know, the the Corona crisis or you know, wherever you want to call it, this accelerant is happening. What we need to really break through is this idea that school is a noun, and really, school has to be a verb, right? This idea of education can't be linked to place anymore, and right. what great educational institutions are finding out is that we need to be educating people where they are. And that's, that's going to be a challenge. That's not going to say that we can't, you know, don't need a a need for bricks and mortar and community and, and all the other things that happen in a physical space, Mm -hmm. but that can't be, you know, the walls of the campus can't be the walls of learning. And, and that's really, I think what, what we're finding out. I mean, it's going to be, you know, this, the impact of, this crisis on higher education is going to be significant. You know, when you look at it, we were already, you know, again, these, I talk about this being an accelerant. When you look at higher education in particular, I'll, I'll pick on four-year universities because I, I find four-year universities tend to not be as nimble. And so it's really harder for them to change and adapt faster. But, you know, they got all high and mighty on a, just from a demographic boom where they had both millennials and this massive age group and then this push that everybody needed to go to college and get a four-year degree and that even going to a community college and getting your AAS wasn't good enough anymore. Everybody has to have a four-year degree. And so had all these students and all these programs. And just demographically, we know that this next generation, this Generation Z, is going to be smaller. So they're already facing some of those things. And now the price has gone up so high that it just is difficult for people to create this idea of this value proposition you know, one of the interesting things, they're starting to do surveys now with students, in particular incoming students, um, into four-year university for next fall. Uh, and it's it's interesting. You've already seen a 20% drop in enrollment nationwide yeah. in four universities, which is going to just kill programs. You know, more and more of them have invested in their own student housing. And if you do an entire semester without student housing, how does that impact? And students themselves, two-thirds of the incoming students say – if they're doing a virtual education, it should not just cost less, it should cost much less. 
And then there's a and conversation between degrees versus skills, right? Skills, and exactly. Value prop. And more and more people are finding that a four-year degree without any skills attached to it is becoming less and less valuable. And that, like you said, that value prop is just, it's not there. And I, we're going to see a significant wave of uh, four-year universities who are just not going to be able to weather this wave. And, right. you know, that's an unfortunate reality for not just for the schools and the educators, but for a lot of the communities that these schools are in that drive economic engines. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty significant. You know, there's a, a quote I saw from a, a parent that kind of summed up what um, the challenges are going to be. A parent whose child is at Harvard. Oh and she yeah. said, yeah. quote, I'm not paying for Harvard and getting the University of Phoenix. Yikes. No offense to the University statement. of Phoenix, but that's the perception. Right. You know, what are people doing? And, but I think there's a great opportunity there for community colleges, Absolutely. especially these local places, right? More and more people are feeling like they don't want to leave. They're not going to stay in a dorm. They're not. This is a great opportunity for this incoming class and for other people to take advantage of local close and, you know, places where we can be more nimble and adjust more to local demand for you know, what employers are wanting. And that's, right. that I think is going to be really critical. And I think we're really going to see this as an opportunity for a renaissance around more streamlined local community college options for education in partnership with local employers. And I think people are waking up to that significantly. That, that's, I mean, I, I think people are having an eye-opening experience and this certainly, when this all washes out, we're, we're going to have to. Because amongst other things, you know, you look at unemployment numbers. And it was like, hey, look, there were only like 3.5 million people who applied for unemployment this week. You know, we're over, you know, right. we're like 25 right. million people. And the reality is a lot of those, well, it depends on what you mean by a lot, but at least probably two thirds of those jobs will never come back. That's right. And people are going to need to get upskilled and it's going to be our opportunity to really look at where those local jobs are because these people don't. Right. If you're already out of work, you need to find employment in your city, in your town, where your family is. And right. And so this is our opportunity to really dig back in, reach back out to those employers that are hiring, who are going to build back up and figure out what do you need today and what are you going to need next year, two years from now? How do we help you get the talent that you need? And that's really where I think we get a great opportunity to take advantage of this and really leverage the strengths that we have. That's right. And along that same vein, you know, we look at, you're right, There's this is the prime time for community colleges to step up and reskill the existing workforce, get them ready into new fields, into emerging fields that although we're in a global crisis, there are emerging industries out there and to get them ready for those positions and for those occupations. And so that's one facet. The other facet is, you know, what about our students? What about the students that are new in entering to the workforce this coming year? It's so different. It's almost unfair, you know. What could we give as advice to our student who's listening right now and our new grad who's listening right now entering into the workforce? Really, it goes back to what you alluded to earlier. You didn't even allude to You said specifically. It's not a question of your degree. It's a question of your skills. And how can you quantify what skills you're bringing to the table? 
you know, when we talk about what are the skills that will be most in demand, we don't know what the jobs are, but we have a pretty good idea of the skills. Right? When you look at, and this is a, a graph that I, I show, it's, you know, one of those classic sort of what's most in demand and what's going to be hardest to find. As you said, that you know, the top two skills are going to be most in demand and hardest to find in the future are critical thinking and problem solving. How are you at those two skills? How do you quantify how good you are? How do you continue to develop those things? You know, maybe, you know, you got your degree in welding or, you know, you're doing a CNA or whatever those things are. What? That's great. But what else did you learn? How do you quantify those, you know, quote unquote soft skills? And how do you help demonstrate that? Because that's, that's what will set you apart. Employers still say today, the number one thing they are looking for when they are hiring a new position is for work ethic. It's around these soft skills. If you want to separate and differentiate yourself in the marketplace, it's not going to be your where you went to school. It's going to be, do you demonstrate these foundational workplace skills? Do you have a good attitude? Are you willing to learn? Are you a good team player? Are you a creative thinker? Are you a problem solver? Everything if you're a just a ro- can't do, right? Right, right. If you're just that. a robot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Then not only will your job prospects not be there, but that job will probably be going away, right? I mean, you look at you know, anything that could be that's repeated, that's repetitive, regardless of whether or not it's a physical job or a mental job, those things are going away probably pretty quickly, right? If there's anything right, that we've learned from this, it's that if we can replace people with a machine, it's going to happen, and this is speeding it up, right? Um, this idea of human to human contact, but what that means is those human to human interaction skills are going to become more valuable because fewer and fewer people are going to have them. You know, one of the examples I use in talking about you know this, how this works. I mean, a great example is an Apple store, and I know they're all closed now, and, and there's a good reason for it. Right? There's a reason why Best Buy is still open, <laughs> doing curbside right. delivery, and right. Apple stores are closed. Right? right? You go into a Best Buy. What's a Best Buy? It's a warehouse of stuff. And you wander through a warehouse of stuff, right? What's an Apple store? An Apple store is people, right? There's like anytime you walk into an Apple, it's packed, right? It's half staff though. It's the human piece because people want that. And Apple realized that, right? One of the most successful technology companies realizes that what people want is people. And that's what can't be replaced. But what Best Buy is finding is that they can just order crap off the internet. I don't need people. And that's what they're doing. And unfortunately, you know, last week laid off 60,000 people. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the evolution of what's going to be happening. And that's a perfect example for your graduates who are out there. Right? What is it that you're doing that adds that human touch? What is it that you can do that other robots, computer programs, things can't do? Right. And when you really highlight those skills and you quantify those, regardless of whether or not that's on a resume and an interview or actually on the job, that's when you're going to be successful and other people aren't. That's right. That element of creativity too. And then we forget about that. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's part of it too, right? I think that goes into that sort of creative thinking, problem solving, but also relating with other people, empathy, right? What, what a robot can't do, be empathetic. <laughs> There's no computer program that will be able to do that, right? right? And so those skills well, right? Like creativity. A robot can't be creative. It does what you program it to do. And, you know, those skills are really important. I want to circle back on 
our conversation about intersectionality between government, academia, and industry, you know, we hear all the time, community colleges need to offer apprenticeship programs for a variety of different reasons. You know, apprenticeship programs are also, you know, there's good and bad. There's good and bad to apprenticeship mm-hmm. programs. I think that we are now in a, in a place where we need to redesign what those apprenticeship programs should look like and help the Department of Labor in shaping those for us. What are your thoughts around that? I, I mean, again, in normal circumstances, right, without the global crisis that we're in right now, <laughs> taking that very Let's take it back to a magical time. We'll call it February. <laughs> what, you know, what, what are your thoughts around that? Because I, I have mixed them. i got to be honest with you. I have mixed emotions around apprenticeship programs. There's a couple things on that that I would say um, as it relates to, oh, my God. Again, apprenticeship itself could be an entire uh, podcast episode. Uh, I will say this: apprenticeship is at the far end of the work-based learning continuum. Work-based learning is awesome; it's powerful; it's great. And again, you talk about the intersectionality between academia, industry, and government. That's work-based learning is a great place for those three things to come together. The challenge is if you only are looking at apprenticeships, the farthest end of work-based learning. As the solution, then I think you're going to miss a lot. Not that we necessarily have a football season, but let's say we have a football season. right? Mm-hmm. That's like only ever throwing long bomb touchdown passes. Yes, some of them will go, but the teams that are most successful march their way down the field with a mix of different things. We have to be able to do that same sort of mix and match because apprenticeship is not always the best option. The challenge with apprenticeship in America and with uh, Department of Labor in a technically, you know, the, the registered apprenticeship program without getting too wonky, moving that direction. It's it's driven because of the success of the apprenticeship in skilled trades. And so even the application to get a registered apprenticeship program uses language from the skilled trades. I was talking with uh, a woman who was the, her software firm became the first IT company in America to have a registered apprenticeship program and was talking with her about kind of going through that, the language, and she's like, I don't have anyone in my firm who's a foreman. <laughs> like, I, I, um, we don't have journeymen um, in, like, like, even the language in the application right. was just go- geared entirely in that area. Sh- they eventually worked it all through and got it. But does it even have to be registered in order for it to be effective? You know, and does it have to fit all that traditional criteria? I mean, here was the interesting thing about the IT company that started their first registered apprenticeship program. I asked her who she partnered with academically to do like their, you know, their courses. Were they, you know, mm-hmm. was they doing through a community college? So they were doing an AA. Was it a four year? And they were getting, a, you know, a full, you know, bachelor's in you know, information science or something. And she said, we didn't partner with any academic partners. I was like, well, what? She's like, so what we don't even do like a Microsoft certification she said, what are, what we found, because what they, what they would do in essence is they would take apprentices, apprentices in their shop and hire some of them, but most of them then they would farm out to other IT companies in the region, mm-hmm. kind of that, for that ecosystem. And she said, what we found is that the only thing that mattered to everyone else was what they had done and that your work during your apprenticeship was all that mattered. And I was like, makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I get it. Um, yeah. but wow, yeah. I mean, what, you know, you talk about 
intersectionality where if we don't provide value, we won't be included. Right? I mean, right. the perception there was that there was no value whatsoever in what academia was providing. And maybe that's true, right? In this case, I don't know. But obviously, we didn't do a good job of getting involved in that apprenticeship side. And so the offerings that academia had provided absolutely nothing there at all. What I think we need to do is figure out a way to get businesses more engaged in the learning process, and that doesn't always mean an apprenticeship. There's a lot of businesses that aren't ready for apprentices. But here's the problem, as with many things, and this is where the government comes in and does great things and is really meaning well, and then it just ends up screwing up the whole system. Right? You throw all of this money into apprenticeship programs. Well, what's every school, college, and university going to do? I'm going to try and get some of these dollars. And so what we end up doing is, right, is we hunt grants, we hunt this money, and then we're like, oh, crap, we've got to figure out how to do an apprenticeship program. When maybe an apprenticeship program isn't the right answer, but in order to get the federal dollars or whatever that, you know, wherever it comes from, we now have been forced to go fit into this model and then make it work for us and our industry partners. And unfortunately, that ends up oftentimes hurting relationships with our industry partners more than it does building trust. It certainly does. And there's there's so many other ways for us to, there's so many other ways. And you talked about work-based learning. Gosh. I mean, again, another episode. But right. we can go <laughs> at nauseum, right, how an industry partner, a business can work with us and strategically work with us, embedded in within our um, instruction and within our classroom. And honestly, what that story tells me is that we, as community colleges, need to share our story a little bit better. And a little bit louder. Because at the end of the day, sometimes industry just doesn't know, right? And that example that you gave, she just didn't know. But if we were, and I think that we're doing a much better job at it now, but as individual community colleges, specifically here in LA, tighten up our story, tighten up our narrative with our business, with our business community and letting them know that we do have the talent, you know, both from we have talent within faculty. We have talent within our student population. And we are here and we're open and we're ready and willing to connect. Right. Yeah. And, and to customize that approach, too. I mean, there's no cookie cutter approach. And I think that's what we forget, too. Sometimes as, you know, big community colleges across the nation, we forget that there's not a cookie cutter approach to business development. Business development is very customized. And it's high touch, it's customized, it's repetitive, and it takes a really long time. It usually takes, wouldn't you agree, about a year by the time we get, you know, just one industry partner to work with us. It really takes that long, that um, that process, you know. I'll tell you that. To, that. to that point, here's part of our challenge, too. As academia, we have not traditionally seen business development as this sort of partnership piece around skill development, right? If we, again, did business development, it was for fundraising or for maybe doing something in a community, uh, in a career center. Or, yeah, we, it, we just haven't done enough work in the past really building a true partnership with sure. industry in our area. And so they don't think of us as a solution, right? They think of us as something they're doing to help out. It's part of our give back. We're going to go do this work with the community college. I think, Josh, you and I are going to have to develop. An, we have like five episodes like in the future. <laughs> you and I just together. Yeah. And I think, I think one of them is, you know, hey, how are community colleges a solution? We truly are a solution I, in so many ways. Yeah. In so many ways. And, I'm so happy you said yeah. that. 
I mean, to that point, I mean, one of the things that I love about working with community colleges is, especially on the non-degree side, you could be so nimble. Can right. you know? You talk about what does industry need? Okay, we can get that up and running before you know it. You know, you go to a four-year university. We've got to go take it to the review committee. We've got to go take it here. The dean has to approve. We've got to figure out how many sections we're. Right? I mean, it takes forever. Right? But, but we can do things much faster at the community college level if we allow ourselves to. And that's, I think, that's a key piece. And getting industry to see that. Because so oftentimes we've sold ourselves in the past and sometimes we're a victim. I mean, I see a lot of community colleges are a victim of their own sort of successes in some areas. You know, hey, we're a great gateway to get into the UC system or, you know, whatever that might be. Or, hey, if you, you know... If you can't make it to college yet, come here and we'll get you college ready. As opposed to, we are a solution in and of itself for our industry partners, for our students, for our communities. You know, we we provide value in lots of different places. We are not just a place that you go temporarily or as a stopover on a way. We can be a destination. And selling that to our industry partners is as important as selling that to our students. That's right. That's right. We act as a continuum, and many, many times, many, many times we act as that continuum. Okay, Josh, we're taking a look at the rest of 2020. Okay, here we go. You ready? We're going to take a look at the rest of 2020 in your I'm, I'm really, I'm not liking where we're going already here, but okay, I'm ready. <laughs> Brace yourself. <laughs> rest of 2020 in your crystal ball, let's look at what should be our key goal as an academic institution, as a student, and then I really want to know what are, what are your what is one of your key goals for the rest of 2020? All right, so from academia, here's what we have to do. Still, we can't. Uh, I've just come up with this slogan here off the top of my head. We need to keep the community in community college. When people are distance learning, when we don't see each other face to face we lose again that human connection. As academia, we have to find ways to continue to build community to make people feel connected through the end of 2020. Because I think that's, you know, you can say what you want to about this whole piece about open back up or reopen here, blah, blah, blah. People miss people. People. They miss this connection. Things will get back to closer to normal, right? That it'll open up. We'll start to move more in that direction. But how do we still build that sense of community of belonging that this is, that we are a place that you're a part of Um, that longing for that, I think is going to be really important for us. And we can't as academia can't leave that behind in the quest to get everybody online so they can take courses and we can still get seat hours, you know, our class hours, and we can still keep people on path for graduation. Those things are important, right? We got to do all that through the fall, even if we're not there in person. But how do we keep community? I think that's going to be a big piece. I think for students, there is no better time for you to not only learn about, demonstrate, and be able to truly be intentional about your development around creative thinking and problem solving than this year. What are you doing? Are you sitting back and just figuring out, I don't know, I'll just kind of do whatever kind of comes around? Or is this the time, I would argue, you students out there right now, what are you doing to be creative during this time to figure out 
better ways of doing things. What are what are things that you can do? Um, you know, uh, people will tell you one of the great things that's come out of this is that people are connecting with folks around the country and around the world that they didn't connect with on a regular basis. You know, families are doing, you know, multi-generational Zoom calls. You know, it, it just even with different people. I, on this past Tuesday, just happened to, we randomly got four people together on a Facebook messenger video call. <laughs> and one of them happened to be at his 92-year-old mother was there and joined us on the call. And I mean, it was hilarious. You know, she started talking about how when she was in high school, they talked about that someday there would be a telephone in every home. <laughs> and now she's doing a video call with people. She's like, are you in the building? We're like, no, we're not in the building. Um, uh, and then she talked about polio and she talked about the red fever and right. And, you know, it's, it was amazing, great learning that wouldn't have happened without this right there's no way we would have gone over there and been like oh can you eileen can you please tell us about polio never we would have that conversation right so you discover sort of these opportunities to to learn and to connect in some of those different ways what else are we doing you look at people who are doing really creative cool things you know what are we doing using technology to creatively problem solve what are you what are you doing to come up with cool things and that to me is a great opportunity for us to leverage that as we start to reopen the country. What are some other ways of doing things like that? And that's where students, you're out there, you're listening to this right now. This is your opportunity. You get to make a mark because nobody else is doing this. Right? This is brand new to everyone. This is real estate no one's lived in. Take advantage of that. Come up with the next cool, awesome thing, even if it's just for your friends. Because that's the kind of stuff that will leverage those skills that you can even then maybe talk about in an interview that you could then maybe build into becoming your next entrepreneurial business idea. Whatever that is, that's what I see through 2020. People or students will take advantage of this time and not simply be, woe is me. Uh, Classes have to be online. I can't. I hated doing that in the spring. We're going to have to do that in the fall. This is stupid. I hate it. Take take advantage of that opportunity. You know this is this is a time to take advantage of that, both because it's you know new technology, but we've got we've got more time. You know, for me in our business, one of the things we talked about for a while was trying to figure out how we create some of our face to face interactive, peer based learning and move it into an online format. And after six weeks of development, we're launching it on t- next Tuesday. Take advantage of the time. Don't just you know, don't just sit back and and wonder. Oh, I can't wait for things to get back to normal. Because the reality, too, is normal is going to be different, certainly for a while. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me today and our listener. In closing, I close every email now, too. I just three <laughs> three wishes I have for everybody. Stay strong, stay healthy, and stay positive. Thank you. Thank you. And we will see you at our Future of Work conference slated for November 17th of this year. More to come on that. I'm excited. Uh, it'll be yeah. good. We'll have a lot of, we'll have a lot of fun, and uh, that's what I love about all these things. I always pick up just great new ideas or just concepts from everybody. Always yeah. be learning. That's right. Thank you, Josh. You are very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast presented by Pasadena City College. If you'd like to get involved and have resources to share 
or be a guest on the show, you can find a link to our webpage in the show notes. Also, don't forget to subscribe and tell us your thoughts about the show. You can look forward to new episodes weekly every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.